Hello, hello. That was awesome. Um, actually, this kind of all works out, having the profession of faith and actually the two praise songs that we sing. Um, it's perfect for this week. And if you're just joining us this week, um, this is the perfect time to be at Rock Fellowship because this week we are starting a brand new series. And now we've had series before. And if you've joined us and you're a regular member, you know that generally our sermons operate within the context of a series where Pastor Chris... Um, it's either Pastor Chris or Pastor Chris and myself will come together and we'll come up with a topic and we'll work through that together. But this is, um, this is the first series that we are starting where Pastor Chris told me, all right, I want you to come up with a series. And generally speaking, it's like he's like, I want you to come up with a series. And then he'll be like, okay, but real quick, what are you talking about? And let's make sure we like figure this out together. Okay, good, good. And he'll like, you know, kind of proofread it, edit it, and like maybe say it like this and then go. And he'll generally help me come up with a title because my first draft of titles are generally not that good. But this is the first series where Pastor Chris was like, come up with a series. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to come up with one then. And he's preaching next week, and I'm just telling him, what to preach about. So it's very exciting for me. This week, um, welcome to our first series, the first part of this series. And the series is called um, Comeback Season. Comeback Season. And it's titled that for a couple of reasons. And the first kind of illustration, kind of like the context of the word, when you think of like comeback season or comeback, generally I think of sports. The first kind of instance I think to, and if you're familiar with the term a comeback in sports, it refers to a sporting event, let's say a basketball game, where the losing team stages a recovery, a team that is losing fights and claws their way back, and they end up winning the game despite having a losing start or a disadvantage at the beginning, right? A team is losing, and they're down a lot, and the second, third, fourth quarter, they claw their way back, and they stage a comeback, and the team that was once losing has made a recovery, and they're now the team that ends up victorious in the end. The other kind of, like, way I use this phrase I think of is, is in, like, pop culture, right? When an artist or an athlete or some celebrity falls out of relevance for a season, right? An artist doesn't have an album for 5, 10, 15 years, and then all of a sudden they come back with an album. That album is called, like, their comeback album, someone that has fallen out of relevancy, and it comes back into the spotlight, comes back to relevancy in your life with something new, with a brand new piece of content. And these two meanings kind of tie into what this series is all about. But before we go deeper into what this series is about, here's who this series is really for. Here's kind of the target audience I had in mind. Um, when it came up with the series and the contents. It's a series for those that if you are sitting here at church and you feel like, you know, I've really just like kind of lost my fire. Like I've lost that passion for Jesus. Like I don't not believe in Jesus anymore, but I'm like, I'm just going through the motions. I haven't, I haven't heard from God. I'm not really like, my heart isn't really there. And I'm just, I'm not falling away. I'm not going to stop coming to church. I'm here. I'm sitting in the pews, but... As far as me personally, there's not much going on with Jesus right now. Or for those of you, and it's a very similar situation, where you just feel like very, very comfortable right now. I'm good. Me and God, we're good. Nothing's happening. He's not really moving, but like I don't really have a problem with that. And really, I'm very content with my life, with my spirituality. Let's, let's not rock this boat. It's very good. We're very comfortable. Or a series for people that feel like if you feel like you're desire for Jesus. Maybe a little bit, you're a little bit further out and you feel like you're drifting away. God is not really relevant in your life anymore. You don't see the need and you really, you're starting to question now, like, what is the point of all of this? Do I even need Jesus in my life? Maybe you're sitting here and you don't remember the last time you cracked the Bible or got on your knees to pray. And to be honest, you're not sure that you feel like you need to. You've made it this far. 
past month, two months, a year or two without really relying on Jesus, without praying and getting on your knees, without having to hear from God, and you're like, I'm good. I feel like this is okay. And you feel yourself kind of drifting away. You're cracking open the door, maybe thinking of taking a step out of this community. And if you're feeling any of those feelings or you feel like, yes, that's me right now, or I know someone that's in that situation right now, I'm glad you're here. And this series could be something that helps reignite the spirituality and your relevance and need and desire for God in your life. And the way this series is going to do this is kind of with this theme verse, Proverbs chapter 24, verse 16. This is kind of the theme verse for this series. For though the righteous fall seven times, they rise again, but the wicked stumble when calamity strikes. And if you grew up in church, you may have heard this passage before. It's a personal favorite of mine. And this verse kind of encapsulates the theme of what this series is going to be all about. Because I think in a lot of ways, there is like a direct correlation between how aware I am of my own sinfulness and how relevant Jesus is in my life. When I feel like I'm helpless or I feel hopeless or I feel like I can't or I feel like a terrible, terrible person, I find that I naturally draw back to God. God, I need help. God, forgive me. God, save me. But when I'm not feeling that way, in moments in my life when I'm totally fine, the desire and need for Jesus slowly starts to fade. And I think a profound truth that the author of Proverbs is teaching here, especially in this proverb, is hinting at is that a part of being righteous, a part of being a faithful follower of Jesus is recognizing when you have fallen and then when you understand that you have fallen, deciding to get back up. I'm going to go into a little bit more about why this verse is so important and what this verse is not saying about what it means to be righteous in a little bit. But to put it simply, as far as theologically, what this series is going to be talking about is two kind of basic, very basic biblical principles where if you grew up in church, you've heard these two words a lot. And the two words are repentance and forgiveness. Repentance and forgiveness. And these are the means that we're going to be learning about to use to get ourselves back up, that when we fall, repentance or forgiveness will be the tools that we use to help us get back up and reignite our life with Jesus. Before we go any further, join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just want to thank you so much for this privilege and this opportunity to be your tool and to be used by you and to speak your word, Father. I ask that in this moment, in this time, in this space here, your spirit be welcome, Lord, and your will be done in rock fellowship as it is in heaven. Praise you in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, something you may not know about myself, um, you probably can't tell if you, the first time you met me was when I started working here, but there was an era in my life where um, a song influenced me to the point where it made me pick up a hobby. And when I was growing up, um, I listened to a lot of radio in the car. Like, we didn't really have the means to, we didn't have, like, the audio jack or the aux cable. So we just listened to the radio, and the only two radio stations I was allowed to listen to growing up was 95.9, which was The Fish in Southern California, so the Christian family-friendly radio station, and two, Radio Disney. And those are the two stations I was allowed to listen to growing up. And there was an era in my life where the song that I heard the most outside of, like, Here I Am to Worship was the song called Skater Boy by this rock punk um, band uh, led by Avril Lavigne. And I remember I listened to the song, and the song, if you know, it's a song about there's this girl, likes this guy, and he's a skateboarder. Um, but he's a skateboarder, so she doesn't get with him. And the story ends with she should have gotten with him because he was more than just a skater boy. Anyways, I listened to this song a bunch of times, and it, like, inspired me to, like, 
I gotta learn how to ride a skateboard because this is what we gotta do. And I remember I begged my mom, 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 please give me a skateboard. And she's like, no, like, I don't want you to be like a skater. Like, oh my, look at all those people that ride skateboards. Don't do that. I'm like, mom, please, I'll be a Christian skater. Like, it'll be really good. And I begged my mom to the point that Christmas came around. I was like, come on. Like, I've only been asking for one thing. I want a skateboard. And I remember she took me very, like, begrudgingly, but, you know, wanting to, like, all right, it's Christmas, let's get you something, uh, to a skate shop. And, like, I remember, like, we pulled up to the skate shop, and I was like, oh, maybe not. There's, <laughs> like, a lot of smoke everywhere, a lot of people with tats. I was, like, dragging my mom through, like, hi, we're here for a skateboard. And, like, my, my friend had, like, told me all the different parts, and, like, I got to build, like, a custom skateboard. And I still remember. I had, like, an Elements deck with, like, black and white cargo trucks, ABEC 5 bearings. I picked it all out. I picked out and customized a very, like, average skateboard because I had to stay within budget. And I remember, like, having it and the guy was, like, building it in front of me. Like, he put, like, the sandpaper on. He cut out the logo. He, like, drooled in all the car, all the trucks. And I saw it. I was like, yes. This is, like, this is it. Like, I've been waiting for so long. I'd, all this time I've been, like, kind of borrowing my friend's skateboard. But now, like, the dream was going to be fulfilled. Like, I had the skateboard. It's going to be, like, the song. It's going to be awesome. And so I remember that night we picked it up. And, you know, the minute we got home, I was like, well, I'm going to ride this thing. Um, and so I put it out on the sidewalk, and I started just, like, just writing. No trick. Let me just go in a straight line. And if you've ever seen me um, snowboard before, you, you will have an idea of what I probably was like on the skateboard. If you see me snowboard, I can snowboard. Like, if someone asks me, do you know how to snowboard, the answer is yes. But when you see me snowboard, it looks like I'm just almost not falling. Like, I'm just, like, barely making it down the mountain. And it's like, you know, like, I feel like snowboarders, like, just look cool in general. Like, it just looks cool when you see them snowboard and, like, very laid back. And they're just, like, doing those jumps and they're chilling. When I snowboard, it makes you a little bit stressed. You're like, is he going to be okay? And when I rode this skateboard, I felt, like, very, like, this feels not okay. And I fell so many times just trying to go in a straight line on the sidewalk. And then I was like, you know what? It's okay. Like, first day, like, of course this is going to happen. And I was like, you know what? Maybe I should try, like, tricks. Let me try doing some tricks on this because that's, you know, why you get a skateboard. And if you know a little bit about skateboarding, you know, like, the basic trick that everyone learns is how to ollie. And the idea of an ollie is if you have a skateboard, you pop the front up, and then you jump, and then the back comes up, and you just land it. Nothing flips, nothing turns. You just come up, and you come down. And it's kind of like the fundamental trick that everything else comes off of. And I remember I was kind of, like, in this, like, on the street, and I set it down, and like, I was like, okay, left foot up, right foot up, jump, come down, left foot up, right foot up. I did it, and I stood on the skateboard, wobbled, stood there, and I was like, all right. So then I just do it, and I, I did it, I jumped. The skateboard did not jump with me, but I jumped, and then I landed on the skateboard, and it flew out underneath my feet, and it landed on my back. Landed on my back, all the air in my lungs were knocked out. I was like gasping for air, like clawing at my skateboard, which was now like 20 feet away. And I was just like, this is not right. Like, this is not what was supposed to happen. I remember like, it really, I could see the dream falling apart in my head. And like the pain and the embarrassment, like I'm not breathing at this point. I'm just like gasping for air, like crawling towards my skateboard, hoping nobody saw anything. And eventually what happened was I, you know, for the sake of my mother at this point, because she bought me the skateboard, I was like, well, I have to learn how to ride this thing. And, and time and time again, I kept getting back up and trying to trick, falling, trying, falling. And eventually I transitioned to like, I would just put it in the grass and I would just practice the tricks on the grass and I couldn't hit it on the grass. And like it hit me about two months in 
this is not going to happen. I need to pivot. I need to figure out like how to figure this out. And then I remembered my cop out. And because my mom bought me my skateboard, um, my sister was like, that's not fair. Like he gets a skateboard, what do I get? And so she got, I don't know if you remember these, she got a ripstick or a waveboard, if you call it. And so it was like, you know, if you've seen it, it's hard to describe what it looks like, but it's a board and it has two wheels that swivel. And you look significantly less cool riding a ripstick, for sure. The way you propel yourself is like you shake your hips and then you go forward, but it's much easier to just ride. And I remember there was a point where I said, yeah, I can't do this. So like any reasonable older brother would do, knowing that my sister was watching me on this skateboarding journey, I, I quit and I stole her ripstick and I said, Jane, this is my ripstick now. I'm just going to ride this. And she was like, oh, my gosh, that's not fair. And I was like, no, no, no. You don't understand. I'm sharing. Like, you can ride the skateboard, and I will ride your ripstick, and we'll just go forward like this. And I still remember this day. She brings it up, like, a decade later. She's like, remember when you, like, asked Amma for a skateboard, and you never rode it, and you just stole my ripstick? And really, like, the, the plainest way to put my short skateboarding saga was, um, it was too hard. Like the hardest part of that, I think, was it came down to that first night when I tried to ollie and the board betrayed me. And then I had to then get back up and try that again. And like know that I'm going to fail over and over again. It really like, even at a young age, like mentally, like I was like, I cannot do this. I cannot keep getting on this thing. And every time after that, I kept losing confidence. I was like, this is stupid. This is dumb. Like, I'm just going to keep hurting myself. Yeah, mom was right. Like, skateboarding is dumb. Like, I'm going to get hurt. This is, this is not okay. And to put it in terms of our relationship with Jesus, I think for most, most of us, we find ourselves in a place where it is actually, it's much easier to continually sin and to continually fall than it is to continually ask for forgiveness and to make an effort towards repentance. And I think a lot of, an issue for a lot of Christians is if you think about the first time, if you were baptized into a church at a later age, or the first time you really felt like you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and you felt like, I am a sinner that is in need of a Savior. Some of you have a moment like that. Some of you have a, an evening, a worship, or an era in your life, a week at a camp or a kayam, where you remember giving your life to God. And you remember, like, yes, I am a sinner. I do need saving. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. That, that feeling that you have, that when it clicked for you all together, that this is something you need. Jesus is someone that you need. In those moments, it's very obvious. You feel like a sinner. You feel like you need help. You need, you need more than this. Yet as time went on, it became difficult to continue to keep up that same level of intensity, that idea of continuing to come back, continuing to ask for forgiveness, continuing to repent and see that nothing was changing. Time and time again, the first time you came to Jesus, like you had all these addictions and problems. Jesus, take these and heal these. Free me from this. And he didn't the week after. And two weeks, three weeks, four weeks. And like it's, it kept getting harder and harder to keep praying and meeting like lord i really want to change i need help forgive me and eventually you felt like this is this is not working like i don't i'm not going to change this whole repentance thing it's not working for me anymore and maybe you did what i did with my own skateboarding career you switched it out with something else and i imagine that for a lot of us it became easier to just live with who we were than to continually try to be transformed by the Spirit. So we became content with who we are. At this point in my life, I am who I am. At this age, it is what it is. To keep asking for repentance, ah, I don't do that anymore. I just, I just have that problem now. I just am that person now. And it's 
become hard for you to genuinely ask God to transform you because one, two, a few decades, a few years in, you just, it just doesn't make sense to you anymore. You've lost that fire and that passion, and it kept getting harder for you to get back on your knees and pray and genuinely ask for God to change who you are. But, and I think the tension for some of us is this, and maybe you've dealt with this and you've asked this question to yourself. At one point, you asked yourself, but honestly, though, am I really that bad of a person? And it brings us to an important part of this message and really this series, which is, what do I need to be forgiven for? Am I really that bad of a person? Maybe some of you here are sitting here thinking, oh, this message is going to be, the series is going to be about repentance and forgiveness, and you can't remember the last time you really got on your knees and asked for forgiveness and repented for a specific sin and genuinely asked the Spirit to transform you because for some of us, if we're honest with ourselves, I don't know, do I need to? Like, what about in my life am I doing that so, so terrible? Am I really that bad of a person? Proverbs talks about a righteous man falls seven times. Am I, am I falling, though? I don't know if I am falling. I feel like I'm a pretty good person. And maybe the rationale is, you know, I can't remember the last time I killed somebody. I don't cheat on my spouse. I don't tell blatant lies. I go to church every Sabbath with my friends. I don't believe in any other gods. I'm pretty good to my parents. I say, oh, my goodness, instead of any other more vulgar alternative. And I'm not saying I'm perfect, but am I fallen? I don't know. It seems a little harsh. And maybe you personally don't feel that way, but maybe there's someone in your life where you try to talk to about Jesus, and you told them, like, yeah, the message of Christianity is that I'm a sinner and you're a sinner, but we all just need Jesus and because we're fallen. And the question they asked you was, what makes me a sinner? What have I done that makes me such a bad person? Because I don't feel terrible. I don't wake up every day feeling like I'm a terrible person. And I don't feel like I need to be saved. What, do I, what exactly do I need to be saved from? And I realize that this is kind of a taboo thing to say if you're a believer in Christ. But maybe for some of us, that's been the thought that's been pervading the back of our minds. If, the, if you can't remember the last time you genuinely asked for forgiveness and to repent of a sin, maybe it's because... If you're being honest with yourself, you don't feel like you really need forgiveness or repentance. You're, you're pretty good. You're generally a good person. You regularly attend church. And so that need to, like, repent and get on your knees and beg God seems a little extra, seems a little too much. And it's important to address this because some of us, if we're honest, sort of feel this way today. But if you feel this way, if you feel like, I don't really have a need for repentance or forgiveness because I'm not... Sure, I'm a sinner, like, umbrella term sinner, but, like, I don't, like, sin like that. And if you feel that way, the problem is this series is going to seem like it has little to no relevance for you. Because, sure, we can talk about the mechanics and the, the benefits and, the, and the, the blessing of forgiveness and repentance, but if you don't feel that you need to do that, then what is the point of this series? What is, the, what is the relevance of learning about forgiveness and repentance when you don't feel like you've done anything that warrants forgiveness and repentance, at least not regularly. And sure, there are moments in our life, sure, there are moments, singular standard, where I, that one time I did that terrible thing, that one time I lied to my parents, that one time I did that, and yes, in those moments, I asked for forgiveness. But by and large, every day, regularly, I don't know. I don't know if that's something that fits 
my life. By and large, for the most part, most of us would probably say that we're good people, and it's probably not a sustainable or reasonable way that you expect me to wake up every day and feel like a terrible person. If that's the case, then, when the author of Proverbs describes a righteous man, it's interesting to take into account that he does not describe a flawless individual. It's interesting, Proverbs 24, 16 says that though a righteous man falls seven times, and in that verse, in that small clause, the implication is Righteous people, faithful followers of Jesus, are not flawless and they are not perfect. And almost the assumption is that you will fall. But if you read what he's saying, the distinction between the righteous and the, and the wicked is the recovery of the righteous man. Meaning the thing that makes this person righteous is that he understands that he has fallen and he decides to get back up. He decides that I'm going to continue on this walk. So really the righteous action is not to never fall, but to understand that when we inevitably fall, we've got to get back up. And I feel like the tension for us today is this. What if, what if I haven't fallen? Or how do I even know that I've fallen? What constitutes fallen or a sin or something bad? And I think for a lot of us, our answer would be, oh, like falling is doing something bad. Doing something, and most of us would describe that as if I do something that, to use biblical terms, that harms my neighbor, right? If I'm unloving to my neighbor, that's bad. If I hit my sibling, if I, you know, murder, if I tell a lie, if I brutally, like, dishonor my parents, or if I, you know, if I financially, emotionally, physically harm someone else, that's like, that's falling, and you should repent for that. But maybe there's some of you here that feel like, if that's the case, well, I don't really do that that regularly. And so I don't really feel any sense of guilt or shame, and I don't know that I normally should. So then what is, what is the relevance of forgiveness and repentance, at least in my daily walk? Because when you read Scripture, Jesus describes repentance and confession as almost going hand in hand with something like fasting and prayer, that we should do this continuously and regularly the problem is, how do you genuinely do that if you're like, I'm not that bad of a person. I don't commit any atrocities, at least on a regular basis. So then what do I do? And if you feel that way, if you feel like, yeah, the idea of falling, the idea, the way I define sin, the way I define a shortcoming with Jesus is harming somebody else. And that's what constitutes like Jesus looking down on me and me needing forgiveness and me needing to get right with God. If that's how you would define sin, then the story I'm going to share with you now is potentially going to bother you a lot because this is where the Bible throws a bit of a curveball. And the story takes place in the middle of the wilderness between the border of kind of the Middle East and Africa where in the book of Numbers, Moses and the Israelites have been wandering in the wilderness and they have decided, this is a very crucial part of the story, where they've been wandering in the wilderness and they just got to Canaan and they sent spies in. And after hearing the spies report, the children of Israel decide we don't want to go into Canaan. It's a very kind of significant, momentous moment where, you know, Moses has been leading these people for all these years, and they finally get within reach of the promised land, and they decide, not only do they decide not to enter the promised land, they start staging a rebellion and a coup to overthrow Moses so that they can all go back to Egypt, because they keep saying it was better back then. So there's that rebellion, and then shortly after that, there's another rebellion where the Levites rebel against Moses. And so is during this the context from uh, Numbers chapter 20 where Moses has dealt with a huge disappointment of being right up to the promised land and being denied entry by the people he's leading. He's been rebelled against twice, and now he's wandering in the wilderness with these people for 
a very, very, very long time. And this is the context of Numbers chapter 20. With all of this weighing on Moses, here's the passage. Numbers chapter 20, verse 2. Now, there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? A very common complaint. It has no grain, no figs, grapevines, or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. So again, staging all these complaints, Moses and Aaron respond by, they went from the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And these are God's instructions. The Lord said to Moses, take your staff, and you and your brother Aaron, gather the assembly together, speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so they, they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he had commanded them. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, them the children of Israel, listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with the staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. This is the story. So kind of same old, same old. They're complaining, there's no water, there's no food, we should have never taken it, we should go out to Egypt. So Moses goes to God and says, God, what should I do? God gives them instructions. Three-step process. Take your staff, gather everybody, speak to the rock, and when you do that, I will provide water for you. He gets, Moses gets two out of the three right. He gathers everyone, he takes the rock, instead of speaking to the rock, he hits the rock. However, water appears and flows out of that rock. When you read the story, at least within the context of the verses that I cut out, Right? It seems like a very all's well that ends well kind of story. What's wrong? This, this, this is fine. Moses made a short mistake, obviously not that great at following instructions. But at the end of the day, everyone got water. The Israelites drank. Everyone's good. They stopped complaining. Let's move on. And the reason this story is not like that, and the reason I bring this up today, is because although from within the context of these verses, it seems like a win-win. Moses lets off a little steam. He gets his frustrations out on the rock. The Israelites get to eat. The problem with this story comes with what happens just after the water comes out of the rock. After the water comes out of the rock, in verse 12, this is what God says to Moses and Aaron. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. Because Moses hit the very, if you, re, if you look at the context of like what he actually did, instead of speaking to the rock, he hit the rock. And because he hit the rock, his punishment is now that he does not get to enter into the promised land. And when you read the story, and that's the conclusion, you can't help but wonder, this feels a little weird. This does not feel right. Because the question is, really, what did Moses do that was so terrible? Like, it feels like the punishment does not fit the crime here. Hey, like, give him a little slap on the wrist. Don't bar him from entering into the promised land that he's honestly dedicate the second half of his life to. Like, if you look at everything Moses has dealt with up until this point, it's like, God, you can't cut him a little slack for hitting a rock. I mean, think about it. What did, actu- what did Moses actually do? Did he harm anybody? Nobody was harmed in the process of making this water. He didn't throw the rock at anybody. He didn't curse God. 
And to add a little bit more in Moses' defense, actually, in Exodus chapter 17, he does the exact same thing. God tells Moses, hey, there's no water. Go outside, take the elders, and hit the rock, and water will come out of the rock. So actually, God, you told him to do that several years ago. And so, like, it's not ridiculous to think that he would do something like this. And the question that arises is, what did Moses do that was so bad? What did he do that warranted such a harsh punishment from God? And I think part of the reason this story seems even worse is because, because God intervenes in his grace and he allows water to come out of the rock, it makes the story seem much more like, what's the big deal? Right? It would seem much more, if this story ended with Moses hits the rock and nothing happened, and a voice from heaven came and said, how dare you? not follow his instructions, then this becomes a story that we share in children's story of like how you should obey God or else stuff doesn't happen. But I think because he hits the rock and God in his grace allows the water to flow anyways, where Moses kind of saves space and the children of Israel still get to drink their water, it makes the story seem much more kind of complicated. It makes the story seem not so black and white. And it makes, it honestly feels like a kind of like a gray area story of was this deserved? Was what Moses did really that bad? In this moment, the question becomes, did Moses fall? Did he sin? And depending on how you interpret this, it can seem like it can paint God in a very kind of petty manner where if you read the story without context and just based off the actions of Moses, it can seem like God is someone that you need to walk on eggshells around and tiptoe because if you get one detail wrong in the instructions God gives you, he's going to take away your hopes and dreams. And it really, it feels that way when you just look at what Moses did. It's an honest mistake. Anyone could have made it. He didn't hurt anybody. And God, by the way, you told him to do that last time. He could have switched it up very easily. What did he really do? And you get to see the inside of what it is that God was so upset about when you look at God's response, at what God tells Moses, what he accuses Moses and Aaron of doing, he says, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into land that I gave you. The accusation that God gives to Moses and Aaron is, you dishonored me and made me unholy in front of the Israelites. And because you did that, I can't let you in. And really, when he put it that way, it's a pretty harsh criticism and a harsh accusation for God to make against the spiritual leader of Israel. Aaron, Moses, you dishonored me and you made me unholy in front of the people. And it makes a lot more sense when you look more carefully at what Moses says before he hits that rock. Before he hits that rock, Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together and they said, listen, you rebels. Must we bring you water out of this rock? And in that sentence, you and I get a glimpse into the heart of what Moses was feeling in that moment. Because Moses stands in front of the assembly in his frustration, in his anger, which I think a lot of us would give him credit for. It's understandable years and years of nagging and, and dragging, and he's probably disappointed in all the rebellions. But he stands there with all of that baggage, and he says, must we bring you water out of this rock? And in that moment, Moses tells the Israelites that he was the person bringing water for them out of that rock. 
Patriarchs and Prophets says that Moses and Aaron had assumed power that only belongs to God. And the reason Moses even goes off script to begin with, the reason he doesn't listen to God and takes matters into his own hands, I think is because the part of him felt very confident. I know how to bring water out of a rock. I did that last time. Last time God used me, I hit the rock, water came out. So this time, by my power, I will bring water out of this rock. Must we, and most likely he's speaking to himself and his brother Aaron who's standing next to him, must we bring you water out of this rock? And the only saving grace in this moment is that God, as loving as he is, allows water to flow anyways, despite where Moses' heart was. And then afterwards, he speaks to Moses, and he reveals to Moses, he speaks into Moses' life, that he understood the truth of what Moses was saying, that in that moment, in striking that rock, in going off script, in taking credit for what only God can do, Moses put himself in the place of God, that through his power and ego trip, he elevated himself to God's position. And despite the fact that the physical action in and of itself, hitting a rock is not a sin by any stretch of the means, right? Hitting a rock, you can do that all the time. He didn't hit a person, an inanimate object. No one was harmed by this. He would not detract from the severity of his mistake. And the mistake was, where was Moses' heart when this happened? And this leads a kind of interesting lens into the eye of what God sees. And when you view it from the context of Moses did, for all intents and purposes, a pretty harmless act, but it was where his heart was when he did that harmless act that led to such a huge consequence, I can't, I can't help but see sort of a similarity between the story of Moses and the rock and a story that takes place much earlier in the Bible, where all someone did was eat a fruit from a tree. And that act in and of itself is harmless. Eating fruit is good for you. What's wrong with fruit picking? But the reason the, the, the sin of Eve was so grave, and the reason it had such big, over, uh, big repercussions, even though, if we're being honest, all Eve did was actually eat fruit, was that in both instances... Moses and Eve took it upon themselves, through whatever benign action it was, they took it upon themselves to place themselves on God's throne and determine that God does not know what's best for me. I know what's best for me. I can be God. Watch me. God told me not to eat this fruit. God told me to trust him. But I think I know better. So I'm going to eat this fruit. As harmless as the action of eating fruit may be, God tells Moses, hey, if you want me to bring water out of this rock, I need you to speak to that rock instead of hitting it. Moses says, you know what? I know how to bring water out of a rock. I can do this, God. Watch me. And he hits the rock. Again, both the action of hitting a rock, what they actually did physically, hitting a rock, eating a piece of fruit, is by large, by most accounts, very harmless. But really what God is hinting at here, what God reveals to the act of what falling looks like, what sin really is, is that in both instances, what led Moses and Eve to their respective actions was a heart of arrogance and a mentality that they would be a better God than Yahweh. That God didn't know better, they knew better than God. And they were comfortable doing so because of this lapse in pride. Which brings us back to the series and, and this tension that I think we as Christians kind of struggle with, and I, do, I know I do myself, is where there is one part of the spectrum where Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, right, that no one is righteous, not even one, that all have sinned and fall short in the glory of God, but what if you don't feel like a sinner? 
right? Because I feel like that's a lot of what prompts us to ask for forgiveness. We feel bad. We feel guilty. We feel ashamed. And so we ask for forgiveness. But if you don't feel bad, if you don't feel like a sinner, then are you good? What is the point of asking for repentance and forgiveness? And I think the message in the story of Moses is that when it comes to falling in the eyes of God, when it comes to sin, when it comes to you stumbling and needing to get back up, it's less about what you do or don't do and much more about where your heart is. It's less about what you actually do because I think for a lot of us, when it comes down to how we determine if this person is a good person or a bad person, if you're a good person or a bad person, it comes down to what did that person do? What have they done? What have they said? What have they not done? And for a lot of us, when we place that lens onto ourselves, when we use that as a rubric to judge ourselves, for a lot of us, we pass. We're good. Like, I don't do terrible things. I'm not a terrible person. I don't say terrible things. But I think the question that God is asking us in this moment, is not so much what do you do, but as he himself would say in 1 Samuel, as he directs Samuel, is man looks, although man looks on the outward appearance, the Lord looks at the heart. I think we as humans, we're much more concerned with what someone did or said, and that's not necessarily the case for God. And I think for us, the relevance of the story of Moses in our lives and for the series can be found in what the lesson of Moses is truly about. That Moses' shortcoming was not in the moment that he hit the rock, but it was much more that in his heart he had decided to ignore God's word because there was a part of him that felt like he knew better. The reason he hit that rock was because for him, deep down, he chose to ignore God's word way before he hit it because he felt like, I can do a better job at being God than God can. And the question I think we owe it to ourselves to ask, especially in preparation for this series, is the question of, have I been ignoring God's word? And depending on, on where you stand and where you stand with Jesus in your personal relationship, it can be a varied response. But the question of, have you been ignoring God's word? And if you're like, I don't know, the second question to ask is, do I even know what it is? Have I been ignoring God's word in my life? Have I been ignoring God speaking into my life? Do I even know what God is saying to me? Do I even know what God's will for me is? Have I even asked? And kind of the last question that I think is important for us is, do I even care what God has to say for me? Because I think if you ask yourself the question of, Am I ignoring God? And your question is, well, I don't even know what he's saying. I don't even know what he wants. I don't even know what his word is. The question that we naturally must ask then is, well, have you asked? And if you haven't asked, then the deeper fundamental question is, do you even care? Does it matter what's God, what God's will in your life is? And the reason I think it's important for us to ask these questions is because of how deceptively comfortable it is for Christians, I think, to stay in that space is. It's really comfortable for me, like, honestly, I don't really care what God has to say to me. But to be honest, I don't think I need to because I'm good. Like, there's nothing going wrong with my life. And honestly, I've been ignoring God for a really, really, really long time, and life is fine. And the only downside is, like, yeah, I don't, like, feel on fire for God. I don't feel the need to come back to God. But to be honest, when I look at what I'm doing, I feel like I'm a pretty good person. When I look at what my life is like, my life is pretty good. So because of that... I don't feel like I need to hear God. I need to ask God what he wants because, to be honest, I don't really care. 
And I feel like if you're in that position and, and you say it a lot and you agree with any of those statements now, you find that it's a very scary and dangerous place to be because of how comfortable it is to be in that situation. It really is where life is going good and you don't need to repent or ask for forgiveness because you're a good person and life is fine. You don't need God because you don't really care what God has to do in your life because honestly, God is just someone you turn to when life is rough. But when life is good, you don't need to repent. You don't need to ask for forgiveness. You're fine just the way you are. And the reason I think that's important is because it's a symptom of a believer that may acknowledge. When you're comfortable not caring what God has to say for your life, I think it's a symptom of a believer that may acknowledge the existence of God, but as far as having any level, but ignoring the authority of God in your life. You acknowledge, yes, sure, there's a God because I'm ignoring him and I don't really care. But to be honest, that God has no authority in my life. I don't care what he has to say. He created the world. He loves me, all that stuff. I come to church because of him. But as far as influencing my life, changing me, having me change, I'm okay. No, thank you. I'm good where I'm at. In other words, God exists, sure, but as far as having any level of influence, being my Lord, being my Savior, I'm okay. I think I can manage pretty well on my own. And the danger, again, is that it's very deceptively comfortable to stay here. Even when you say it out loud and you acknowledge it, it's very comfortable to be like, I guess I don't care what God has to say. But to be honest, I've been here for a while now, and my house is still upright, my car still drives, I still have money in the bank, I still have a family. I'm good. I feel like it's okay, and because of that, it's very comfortable to do so. But, the, but what this does to us, to use biblical terms, and to use a term that God uses over and over in the Old Testament, is that this slowly but surely begins, to use the Old Testament phrase, it begins to harden our hearts. When we take the place of God in our lives, and, we, and when we occupy the throne of God in our lives, of course you wouldn't feel the need for forgiveness or repentance. Why? Because you are the arbiter of your own judgment and justice. And honestly, what have you done ever? Myself, what have we ever done in our lives that we couldn't on some level justify? I think if you showed me a video of like my entire life and showed me the lowest point where I was like, this was the worst thing you did, I guarantee you there is some context, there's some reason why I did that. And for a lot of us, if we are the God of our own lives and we place God somewhere else and we take his place, it stands to reason why there's no reason for us and why there's no need for us to ask God for forgiveness or repentance because to our standards, we're good. We can justify anything we've ever done. It's everyone else around me that needs to step up their game. But me, being a good person, I'm a decently good person. So I don't need to ask for forgiveness or repentance. In other words, the longer we live as God instead of submitting to God, the more our hearts are hardened and the less relevant God becomes to our own lives. The longer we're okay staying in the space of like, honestly, I don't know what God wants in my life, but to be honest, I don't really care. The longer we stay there, the further and further away we get from Jesus because God ceases to have relevance in your life because the place he's supposed to be in your heart, you are sitting there instead. And it's a... It's a, it's a statement that's dangerous, and I want to share this, um, this quote by Ellen White in Steps to Christ, kind of a fundamental 
book that I think a lot of Christians read, especially when they're beginning out in the faith. And she writes this in, in Steps to Christ. He who falls into some of the grosser sins may feel a sense of shame and poverty and his need for the grace of Christ. But pride feels no need. And so it closes the heart against Christ and the infinite blessings he came to give. But pride feels no need. And so it closes the heart against Christ and the infinite blessings he came to give. It's a very profound and kind of momentous truth here where she almost says, honestly, if you were just a terrible person, you were just doing atrocities, you would feel the need to come back to God. But for anyone that has this pride and feels like, I don't need God because I, by my standards, by how I define falling, I don't need to get back up. I haven't fallen. I'm doing well. I'm good. In those moments, Ellen White speaks this, this cautious truth it may be that in doing that and in hardening your heart, you're closing yourself off to the blessings God has for your life. And slowly but surely, maybe without you even realizing, you're drifting further and further away from Jesus. And I feel like for just the fact that you're here in this room right now on a Sabbath, surrounded by your family, especially you parents that have influenced over the lives of your kids, this is not a place where you want to be in. It's not a place where you want to be just drifting further away from Jesus and just being okay with it. And if you feel that way... I want to end with this passage, and this, this last passage of Scripture that we're going to share and end with is going to be kind of what I hope our prayer is for this week as we prepare ourselves for the next parts of the series, as we delve into, because the further parts of the series where we go into forgiveness and repentance have no meaning if we don't feel like we need those things in our lives. And this is the prayer of David, where this prayer is both, he puts the, it puts the, the person praying in a position of surrendering to God by acknowledging God as being God. And this is the prayer that we're going to end with. And I hope that this can be your prayer this week as we prepare ourselves. It's search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We're going to leave this on the screen before we close. But really, this, this is the prayer that I think we, if we pray this in preparation for the series, the rest of the series will, come, will become much more relevant and alive to us because we'll realize that maybe staying in this place as comfortable as it is is not necessarily in our best interest. You parents know this very well. Sometimes when your kids are too comfortable, that's not where you want to be. And if you could just be as comfortable as you want for the rest of your life, you would never feel any growth. And the truth that God reveals to us is when your heart is in a place where you're comfortable because you are sitting where God should be sitting, it's a very dangerous place for you to be as well as your heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just want to thank you again for this privilege of sharing this message and, and the grace that you've given to us, Lord. Father, it's much easier said than done to run to the Father again and again and again. It's, it's easier to sing about a homecoming than to actually come back home, Father. Lord, I think I speak for a lot of people in this room, myself included. We pray and ask for your forgiveness today, Lord. We confess that we have been a criminal, Lord, and we have done things we probably shouldn't have. And we've taken the place that you should be sitting on, Lord. Father, I ask that as we move forward, that during this week, Lord, we pray the prayer of David and you reveal in our hearts, Father, what needs to be changed, Lord. If there's any wicked way inside of us, Father, shine your light on it and weed it out, Father. Lord, we surrender ourselves to you. We surrender our lives to you, Father. May the Spirit enter into our lives and transform us in a way that only you can. Father, we thank you for your patience, for your grace in this process. Praise in your son Jesus' name. Amen.